The following program was pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders. I'm Laura Jones. On the show tonight, changing the narrative around shame and learning about prevention as a means to combat sexual assault. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and our friends from the Rape Recovery Center will be joining us later this hour to have a frank conversation and hopefully come up with some solutions as we confront uh, sexual assault in our community and rape culture, how pervasive it seems to be uh, in so many aspects that maybe we're so in the middle of we don't realize. So I'm excited for that conversation. But be advised, it will be a very adult conversation later in the hour. Also on the show, Poetry Still Happens, you're going to be hearing from Willie Palomo. But first, rallies and resources. At our website, krcl.org, click on Community Affairs. You'll find a whole bunch of resources, including on how to deal with a report sexual assault, uh, as well as COVID resources, rent relief, and more, plus items such as this. And I'm really excited to share this one with you. It's Build Bikes for Kids in Salt Lake City, coming up on Wednesday, May 12th, 4 to 6 p.m. at Squatters in downtown Salt Lake. You can join Candade at Squatters Pub in an effort to build bikes for the entire first grade class at Mary W. Jackson Elementary. For many students, it's going to be their very first bike and providing a valuable opportunity to get outside. So Candade will supply all the necessary tools. You just need to come ready to jump in and help turn some wrenches, folks. No previous bike building experience necessary, but you do need to sign up for a time slot. And last I checked, they're going fast. So get over to krcl.org, click on Community Affairs, Hit the Rallies and Resources tab, and you'll find the listing under Wednesday, May 12th. Living Traditions kicks off Saturday, May 15th at Washington Square with events to follow every Saturday through June 26th. You can also check out their Living Legacy videos. Check the show notes for a link. And then Tuesday, May 18th, a rally to put on your radar. Friends, Allies, and Mentors, FAM, rally to support LGBTQ inclusion in Utah schools, happening at 5.30 at the Utah State Capitol. FAM says they want to send a clear message that LGBTQ plus students, families, and educators deserve to be represented in Utah schools. And the rally on May 18th is a chance to send a signal to Utah State legislators, school boards, and administrators showing that FAM values diversity, inclusion, and wants basic human respect taught in our schools. And now for some breaking news. Earlier today, Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall announced the formation of a partnership with the Other Side Academy to create a tiny home village. It's going to be a pilot for a tiny home model of homeless services in Salt Lake City and will focus on serving people experiencing chronic homelessness. You're going to hear from Joseph Grenny from the Other Side Academy, but first, Mayor Mendenhall. There's nothing more permanent than a temporary use. I've learned that the hard way in city work. And uh, our intention here is to offer permanent housing to people. That means that we can't do a pilot on a parking lot that we need to transition back to being a parking lot at some point. We do not want these homes, most of all the individuals, to ever have to move again. Um, and we want to be able to scale and grow. So it's a significant piece of land size that we are looking for. I think that's the biggest piece at this point because uh, being able to connect to infrastructure and even public transit, I think are things that we can navigate, but those proximity to those resources will be a piece of the consideration. 
So to get a sense of the scale that we anticipate, we have this image up behind the mayor here. Um, that gives you a sense that this is not a tiny little pilot. We need room to be able to grow. Uh, we, we're confident that once the pilot is shown successful, that there's a certain level of scale that will be required to make it sustainable. We'll need a certain number of people that live in the village, a certain number of common services and social enterprises and so on. And so the, the plan is to create something that can actually live forever. Four to five hundred. Uh -huh. Yeah, if you if you look at the model, and we're happy to share copies of that with you, you'll see that there needs to be adequate room, not just for housing, but for gathering areas, uh, for commerce, uh, for services sites, but also for social enterprise. Uh, we, we expect to have a large venue where we can have community events happen here as well. The whole idea is to, to deal with one of the most significant contributors to homelessness, which is a catastrophic, catastrophic breakdown of family. It's a, it's a lack of social connection. And so this isn't just about finding a, way, a place to park people that don't have a place to live. It's about creating a new community. So the, the design of the units is going to be a design that any of us would want to live in for the rest of our lives. We think it's unsatisfactory to create something and call it permanent housing when none of us would want to live there. It needs to be able to have its own cooking facilities, a place where you can have a friend come and visit, a place where you can sleep, a place where you can shower and bathe. And so all of the kinds of things that any of us would prize in a permanent home will be part of this as well. Yeah, so I'll repeat that our intention is that this is a self-reliant community. The Other Side Academy, within nine months of operation, was able to achieve that status as well. In fact, is producing a surplus now, which allows it to be the first donor to creating this new village, which is kind of a remarkable achievement. Um, we believe that, that human beings have far more potential than we typically see in one another. We believe that collective effort is capable of accomplishing enormous things. And we're highly confident that this community will be able to support itself on an ongoing basis. So there will be significant capital expenditures to create the community to begin with, but operationally, our commitment is to be self-reliant. That's Joseph Grenny of The Other Side Academy, now the partner with Salt Lake City in The Other Side Village. And as you heard there in the comments from Joseph Grenny and Mayor Mendenhall, this is in the planning stages. They don't have a site yet. $50,000 pledge from The Other Side Academy. Current students, the first donation into this public-private partnership. And Mayor Mendenhall did also say she's expecting to draw on the American Rescue Plan from the Biden administration, uh, coax some dollars out of that to develop this. This is a project folks could get behind with their time and their talents, as well as their donations. And that's all about being civically engaged. Joining me now to talk about uh, tools to help you be engaged in your community, we have Melissa Nelson-Stipic from the Better Utah Institute, which just released a new civic engagement tool. Hi, how are you? Hello, I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And I saw that you have launched a new gamified civic engagement toolkit. Sounds really wonky, yes. but fun. So after <laughs> the four years that we've had, five years that we've had record voter turnout, despite the contest of wills on who gets to vote, more people voting than ever, it felt like, in uh, 2020. That's good news. And we got to keep pressing forward, keeping people engaged. And I think it's hard when you feel like, okay, there's been this big battle. We've done our bit. We can go back to our lives, Melissa. So tell us about the Better Utah Institute. Remind folks what you do. And then let's get into this new toolkit. 
Yes. So at the Better Utah Institute, we are here to promote civic engagement and good government. And actually, our civic engagement toolkit isn't just for policy wonks. It's for people who are interested in um, getting involved after they've cast their ballot, or maybe they've gone to a rally or shared something on social media, and they want to know, like, what's the next step they can take to get involved and make change in our community? So often I think people can be intimidated out of being civically engaged because you don't know everything. You're not an expert on this. But that's not how our system is designed, that you have to be an expert in order to participate. Exactly. And I think that um, a huge barrier that we see is that people feel like it's either going to take a lot of time or a lot of research to start getting involved. And so that's why we've created this toolkit. Um, It has a lot of games and we have a personality quiz a la BuzzFeed, right? To figure out what kind of advocate are you and what ways will you feel comfortable engaging? Because we know not everybody is the kind of person who wants to get up at the front of the room and uh, state their opinions, right? Yeah. And I understand that this toolkit's your baby. Absolutely. (laughs) It is my baby. I designed it and put it together, but I had so much help. We started out at our former organization, Action Utah. Um, is where we started the toolkit. And then we've uh, migrated it here to the Better Utah Institute. And all our missions are aligned where we want to be a nonpartisan source for all of Utah to be able to get civically engaged. Yeah, Andre Himoff, I remember having her on the show yes. talking about folding Action Utah's uh, might into the Better Utah Institute, Institute, and this is one of the results. So tell me, is it an app? Is it, How is it a game? Let's walk us through this. You betcha. So you start with this personality quiz to find out what kind of advocate you are. Then you take another quiz that is uh, helping you to assess what issue is most important to you. Because the second thing that we often hear from people is that there are so many issues I care about. I'm not sure how to get involved and I just get overwhelmed. So these two personality quizzes is how our toolkit starts. And then we have a series of games that are just, um, it's a web-based game, so you can play it in on your phone or your desktop. And they're just like very rudimentary, you know, level games. We're not talking like Halo or anything like that. <laughs> okay. It's just um, very basic games, but to kind of uh, get at that part of people, I think they... Um, turn off so quickly when we talk about civic engagement. We um, tend to think it's going to be boring. And so we're just trying to uh, let you know that there's a fun way to engage and to get educated about engaging. So there's three steps. And that's getting to know you, the civic engagement 101, and then making an action plan. And I think that's what's really hard for some folks is to turn their interest into action. Absolutely. So what we do, we have about seven games that you can play. And then after that, you have um, an opportunity to put together your action plan. And then uh, we send it to you in an email, but it will also be on your homepage at the Better Utah Institute. Um, We have your lawmakers, um, 
contact information so that if you you know don't know who you re- represents you that's part of making the action plan so that you can know how to get in touch with these people and who they are and then um yeah we ask you to come up with just three tasks around that issue that you narrowed down to um you know get started with civic engagement well coming up we're going to be talking to the rape recovery center it is sexual assault awareness month and I just I'm, I'm mindful of the Start by Believing campaign that Representative Angela Romero started so many years ago and really how that got traction was people supporting it, just making that call to their yep. elected officials and letting their voice be heard. And I, I think that uh, in when it's so easy to inundate lawmakers with kind of robo forms, that phone call, that personal touch is coming back uh, as a necessity, right? Because we've heard from lawmakers, I'm sure you have too, Melissa, that when I get 5,000 emails that are all the same, except for who sent it, you know, I have my people maybe count it, but I don't even think about it. So assessing how effective what you're doing is, has got to be part of that action plan, right? Absolutely. And um, in future um, additions to our toolkit, what we are hoping to do is to help you as an advocate hone that story and um, help you to understand why your perspective is so important. Um, and that, yeah, just hitting a, a you know email button where you haven't even shared your story quite often is not as effective as saying why something matters to you and, um, you know, the impact on your life. Even more important when we conducted essentially an entire state legislative session via Zoom. Um, And trying to get a hold of folks. So, you know, that you got to give them something to grab onto and you got to not give up. So where can people get a hold of this toolkit? You can find it at the betterutahinstitute.org. That's betterutahinstitute.org. And again, Better Utah Institute, nonpartisan. In fact, your civic engagement toolkit is sponsored by You Serve Utah. Absolutely. So a lot of ways to get engaged. And if you're looking for a place to start, the Better Utah Institute can help. Melissa Nelson-Stippick, thank you so much. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. And check tonight's show notes for a link to the new action, Civic Action Toolkit from Better Utah Institute. I'm really pleased to see that come about, not to mention the fruits of, of these two organizations, Action Utah and Better Utah Institute, continuing to do great things together in our community. Still to come, we're going to have that panel discussion with our friends from the Rape Recovery Center, but it is also National Poetry Month that we're wrapping up here, and I've got another great conversation with a Utah poet. Here's that conversation with Willie Palomo of Utah Humanities, where he is program manager for the Utah Center for the Book and has the great pleasure of organizing the annual Utah Book Festival. Hi, Willie. How are you? I'm doing great, and it is a great pleasure. It gives me so much joy to be able to bring books, yes, all over Utah. Well, with all the virtual programming that we all shifted to for COVID, it feels like it's almost year-round now, the book festival and different things that you organize. (laughs) It has definitely felt that way. And you, of course, virtually you're able to connect with people across the globe. So that's been something we've been enjoying as well. I wanted to find out about your 2020 before we hear some of your poetry, because... (laughs) Um, as I recall, you were supposed to have a book of your poetry come out, your debut collection, Wake the Others. Did that happen? No, that didn't happen. That is being postponed um, so that we can release it bilingually. 
And when do we have that expected? Oh, we're still working on the translation, <laughs> so it's going to be a minute. So you've actually had more work because you're doing more virtual presentations and your own work. Well, let's celebrate your own work right now. I understand you wrote something for Thrive 125 celebrating the 125th anniversary of Utah statehood. And I am curious as all get out what's in that poem. This is called Do You Know Me? When Dylan Taylor lay outside 7-Eleven on an August night, I was a song spilling out of his headphones. Before his family could afford a drum, I was the broomstick a Paiute boy beat against this bed. I hang around Dr. Kristen Ree's neck and am pressed against chest, frail but relentless. Once I was Mexico, sometimes I still am. I am the silence in a bishop's office, a prayer that lost its way but never lost its faith. I was not a father to Wallace Thurman, but the paper cut beneath his pen. Before you mispronounced my name, I was already sand. When Brigham Young said this is a place, I was already here. <laughs> so Thrive 125, a collection of poetry in 125 words or less. And that packed a punch in every single one. So as National Poetry Month comes to a close this week, and we're you're celebrating by sharing poets like you, Willie, I'm just kind of curious if poetry was harder or more essential, maybe both over the last year. Yeah, I feel like um, a, a little bit of both. I'm at a certain stage in my life where I like for my MFA, I was obsessively reading poetry for like three, four years. Um, and since taking up a, the job at Utah Humanities, it's like, you know, we do way more book programming than just poetry. So 2020 for me was a year that I've read less poetry, but read a lot more and expanded a lot. So in some ways, poetry um, has always been essential and literature has always been essential on top of that is because it's definitely the anchor that kept me grounded during the pandemic. Um, um, definitely as yes, returning to the voices of different authors and the wisdom that they had to share about, you know, overcoming all sorts of hardship um, outside the pandemic and within it. Um, so that has definitely been crucial for me. I I'm one of those writers definitely that d doesn't force it though. So, you know, when I needed my time to grieve and to just like, you know, try to wrap my brain around what the world had become, um, I definitely took time to do that rather than trying to force out a little poem about it. So the writing has slowed down, but definitely the connection to literature, I feel like has gotten nothing stronger. Well, we'd love to hear one more. Okay, this one is called Diaspora, and I wrote it for Hanel Pineda. Will you tell us who Hanel Pineda is? She is an amazing Salvadoran poet um, based in L.A., who's also a Marshall Scholar and who had her book Lineage of Rain just come out by the Breakbeat Poets um, series um, from Haymarket Books. So go check that out if um, I am allowed to say that. <laughs> Absolutely. Give us the title of your poem one more time. It's Diaspora um, for Hanel Pineda. Amor, I'm sick of talking about the war. One day our mothers will die and with them the blood clot in its memory of fire. Let the clouds of Zancuros drown their moans as we pluck punche from the holes in the mangroves. I'll trade a crab-clawed palm for cocktail y michelada any day. Forgive me for blaspheming the dead. 
I only want to inhale the flowers and not know whose blood fertilized the thumb cutting pink of its petals. I want to choke on my mornas from nothing but my own delightful estupidez. It is said the sweeter the mango, the more shallow the grave. I do not want to imagine the dulzura of your breath. On the news today, migrants throw stones to skip across a lake. We play volley over border walls because that is all there are good for. It is disgusting, I know, to write poetry about marigolds while people are dying, but I broke un ramillete just for two. I never had a dream of reaching the mountaintop, la cima de la puerta del diablo, where you can see El Salvador from the same perspective of a powerless god. I never dream of standing hand in hand with the children of the men who raped my tia or the families who paid the soldiers. I make enough mistakes on my own without carrying the blunders of our fathers. We come from the same crack in the concrete jungle, the same gunshot fired at the stars that shattered the jaw of the moon. We owe no God any more rituals of slaughter, no countries the love stolen from our chest. Oh man, Willie, you blow me away every time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Laura. Where can people catch up with you and your poetry as well as the book festival? Yeah, you want to go to um, Instagram at Palomo Poemas for me, and I'll, you'll see a whole bunch of life updates and the occasional poem when they come to me. And then for the book festival, make sure to follow us at UH underscore book festival and I, Instagram. Um, we also have Facebook and Twitter accounts, um, as well as on our website, utahhumanities.org. Willie Palomo of Utah Humanities, a poet in his own right. And I'm excited for his own book to come out. When we come back, we'll start that conversation on Sexual Assault Awareness Month, Shame and Prevention, with our friends from the Rape Recovery Center. To get us there, I've got a great song for you. It's Bonnie Vare doing Peter Gabriel's Come Talk to Me on Radioactive, KRCL 90.9. Shaking like 
The Safe Utah Crisis Chat and Tip Line provides real-time crisis intervention for kids and teens through live chat and a confidential tip program. Licensed clinicians respond to calls and chats with crisis counseling, referral services, and mental health resources. Search for Safe Utah in the App Store for download. Support for KRCL comes from the Joan Trumpauer Mulholland Foundation, ending racism through education. Films, books, and materials for the classroom and organizations are available online at jtmfoundation.org. This is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now!, followed by Thursday Night Psych with DJ Mike Walton at 8. You get your Dirty Boulevard with Gianni at 10.30, Rich with I Don't Sound Like Nobody at 1 a.m., Jolene's Illustrated Blues at 3, and of course your brand new day with John Florence at 6 a.m. You can find the last two weeks of any show on our website, krcl.org, on demand on KRCL's mobile app. April is many things. As I said earlier, we did Radiothon. Uh, it's been National Poetry Month. It's also Sexual Assault Awareness Month. We started on April 1st with a conversation with Rape Recovery Center. And here as we wrap the month, they are back to join us for a panel discussion about shame and prevention strategies around sexual assault. Please welcome to the program Executive Director of the Rape Recovery Center, Sonia Martinez-Ortiz. Hi, Sonia. Hello, Laura. Thanks for being here. We also have Director of Clinical Services, Laura Baumgart. Hi. Hey. We have Outreach Coordinator, Danny Martinez. Hi. Hello. And Jorge Barraza, Prevention Coordinator. Hi, Jorge. Hello. I wanted to start just briefly with a reminder, Sonia, uh, about the, the breadth and depth of what Rape Recovery Center offers for uh, the community and how long you've been doing it. It's always good to remind folks of the good work of your nonprofit. Absolutely. So the Rape Recovery Center is 47 years old. Um, we initially started as a group of grassroots advocates who were responding to CODARS at the hospital. And it evolved into a crisis line and really wraparound services. The mission of our organization is to empower survivors of sexual violence. We do this through advocacy crisis intervention and therapy. And we also educate the community about the cause, impact, and prevention of sexual violence. 
You know, I was reading a story on KSL.com actually earlier this week, and it was talking about the numbers in our state, because this isn't a conversation that actually we have more on KRCL than I think I've ever had in my private life with friends or family, to tell you the truth. Um, it's not a conversation we have as a community. And Laura, I was hoping maybe as director of clinical services, you could give us some background on what the numbers have been like and whether or not they've been impacted by COVID. Yeah, certainly. Um, as a center, we've certainly seen a shift in our services. We've really had to radically um, meet, meet our clients in different ways, especially with COVID. And so the numbers of domestic violence and sexual assault has drastically increased through COVID and our ability to access clients and for clients to access our services has certainly been limited when you think of being restricted in home, depending on if your perpetrator or loved ones are in the home, it doesn't allow for a lot of confidentiality. And so we've had to radically shift our services to over the phone sessions, sometimes, well, certainly virtual Zoom, our great friend of 2020 Zoom, and um, being really strategic about ways to approach and, and provide services to clients given um, uh, lack of privacy that they've had in their homes too. One of the things that we've heard um, COVID had another impact on is child abuse. Is it, it, I mean, it didn't go away, but the ability to have avenues of observation or reporting became uh, squelched during COVID. Are you feel, uh, Sonia or Laura, that that's happened to rape cases in Utah in the, over the last year? Sonia. Certainly, uh, especially at the beginning or of, you know, sort of lockdowns, there was a lot of hesitation for many of the reasons that Lara already indicated is that, you know, there, in addition to fear of safety and being like isolated sometimes with the abusers themselves, but also the community fear around getting sick folks not really understanding COVID, we had to do a lot of community education and outreach to ensure that um, survivors understood that we were available to respond to hospitals and that SANE nurses were available to respond to hospitals. So it's kind of a multi-layered um, issue that we've seen through COVID. Now that the world has begun to sort of shift in different ways, we're seeing the normal spike in numbers that we see as we're approaching the warm months. And so um, the, the reporting really was hampered by COVID because of the things that Laura talked about, but then also because of the community health issue uh, related to the pandemic. We're talking about sexual assault, and April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And we're going to dive into the concept of shame and how we, we as a community, uh, as perhaps survivors or family members and friends of survivors, deal or don't deal well with shame. And Jorge and Danny, I want to bring you in. Jorge, you're the prevention coordinator, and Danny, you're the outreach coordinator. And navigating shame when you're working with folks or the community, is it something that we talk about? Danny, no, it's most definitely not. And I think we have hesitation, um, especially when I mean, Jorge, I think does a little bit more work on the ground with uh, specific folks, survivors who disclose mine is just community, right? The shame of 
you tend to, for us, for me specifically, it's working with secondary survivors, right? The, perhaps the shame of what that looks like. I know what has been going on. I know what has happened. How do I aid? What is the best practice? How do I reach out to a survivor, right? And even themselves, that's a lot of shame to hold on to. And then with survivors themselves, it's something that you just kind of blame yourself, right? I feel like that's something we always discuss a lot um, is moving past that, but that's it's much easier said than done, right? And yeah. those are definitely conversations we don't have about and they have to be really honest and open conversations. And it's really hard and it's really difficult. Jorge is the prevention coordinator. Do you have to, do, is, is shame kind of like the the elephant in the room <laughs> in, in having these conversations? Like to, to go out and present in a community setting. I, I'm here to talk about sexual assault. Everyone's probably just sitting there very tense, going, where's this going to go? What, what am I going to have to get through? And uh, is maybe breaking down those barriers, starting with, let's talk about shame. Because as a, as a culture, um, the sexual violence, we don't talk a lot about it in our communities and our families. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, I don't specifically address shame when, uh, when I'm presenting, uh, but I can definitely feel it in the room. Um, oh, yeah. How, how, and- what's that feel like? Is it just... People are like, feel feel guilty just having a conversation, even if uh, or it's... afraid of being made to feel guilty. Mm, uh, I see. That's I a, see. a very common response as well. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have issues with identifying my own shame. So when when this topic was decided on, uh, that I said I better bring in some clinicians. So yeah, that's yeah, why I brought in Sonia and Laura <laughs> uh, to actually talk about shame. Yeah. I have to sometimes look at the definition again and remember what shame actually is because yeah, yeah. it's, it's so difficult to spot it sometimes with yeah. us. But when I'm with a group, uh, and this probably won't be a surprise to most people, um, whether it's middle school or adults, um, and this speaks to a lot of things. Um, w- when I, I see people act or like processing maybe shame, um, it's usually more the men or the boys in the, in the room. Um, than the women, uh, really? like women tend to engage a lot more when I'm giving a presentation and men tend to go quiet and become more pensive. Mm. Um, and I actually, I, I actually really try to never shame anyone, uh, and not make it a very gendered conversation because this yeah. happens all the way, but you can see the effect already, even when I'm not being gendered about the way I'm talking about the issue. Wow, that's complicated. All right, Laura Baumgart, let's get to the definition of shame. I mean, I've got the dictionary here in front of me, a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. And then the description they do in quotes is gendered. She was hot with shame. Mm. That's an interesting example. Yes, <laughs> and that, you know, which which dictionary did I pull? That's from Oxford. That's from the Oxford okay, Dictionary. Right on. <laughs> Yeah, for me, I mean, I could go into the intellectual component of shame, but for me, shame feels very somatic and also very relational and cultural. You said somatic, so so let's describe that term. It's a bodily feeling, right? Yes, yes. Even speaking about this right now, um, I notice my heart beating really fast. I also might be a little nervous of being on the radio too, but um, shame to me feels very like I want to stay in hiding or aspects of ourself, like um, the shadow parts of ourselves, the, the darker components of society that we all hold within ourselves too. how we, we want to keep that in the corner. We want to put that underground, so to speak. And 
shame to me is when, when like the little plants pop up and someone sees those aspects of us, um, it, it, we go in hiding, you know, we, we shut down emotionally and, and also somatically we can go into disassociation or even our voice can quiver, um, or we, we stop speaking, you know, to, yeah. to Jorge's point, um, or we come so overwhelmed with flooded emotions that we can, we can acknowledge what, how, how maybe we identify as part of this too. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, a shame, you know, I shared also culturally is we all hold in our, in our bodies and our experience of these lived experiences of perpetration, victimhood, survivor, um, but also the shame of how we all have, have contributed to that too. Yeah. And I got to ask Laura real quick, yes, uh, you know, because um, like I said, sometimes it's hard for me to even kind of spot it or process it, but I know I'm navigating it, you know, and someone got so Unco- you know, in some way when I'm in groups, uh, th- can it show up as defensiveness? Because sometimes that's what I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like oh. there, there's you're navigating your own shame and those around you. Um, and if it's in a situation where you're dealing with a perpetrator, there's that level of it as well. There's shame, sh- enough shame to go around, apparently. <laughs> Sonia, um, before becoming executive director, you actually started as a part time therapist. You're also a master of have a master of social work degree. Tell me about shame and confronting that as the executive director with the background that you have to do the work that you do. Yeah. Um, thanks for asking that. I was actually just thinking about what my colleagues were talking about in terms of shame and really also identifying that this is this work is individual work, but it's also collective work. And so we often forget about what you actually just said, Lara, which is we're not just navigating our own shame. We're navigating, you know, families, systems, workplaces like the Rape Recovery Center that has shame tied as a collective as well. And um, I just wanted to to sort of add that on. But in, in addition to navigating that as a clinician with that perspective, um, being at an organization who is navigating that, that our staff are secondary survivors as well, because they are navigating vicarious trauma on a regular basis. And so we have to consistently confront these dynamics at our organization. So as a as an executive director, it's important for me to sort of model vulnerability. It's important for me to model um, sharing power with other people because that, you know, power also is packed with a bunch of shame. And how do we give power to survivors? How do we give power to people who maybe are part of a hierarchical system like an organization? Um, and so that we can start to break down the, the challenges relating to have having these conversations. For me personally, right, I have to navigate my own lived experiences, not just as a clinician, but as being a Latina, a woman, and all of the other identities that I carry with me into this work. You're listening to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones, and we're talking about shame uh, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and our guests today are from the Rape Recovery Center, a nonprofit in our community that steps into this space and has these conversations on a regular basis. We're modeling that conversation here on the show tonight with Sonia Martinez-Ortiz, Executive Director of the Center, also Director of Clinical Services, Laura Baumgart, 
And as well, we have Jorge Barraza, Prevention Coordinator, and Danny Martinez, Outreach Coordinator. So I, I wanted to talk about the cultural aspects of shame because I was mindful of a story earlier this month, again from KSL, about Representative Angela Romero, who uh, is going to propose a bill about um, uh, the time uh, for when sexual abuse uh, complaints can be filed because the Utah Supreme Court struck down a state law reviving old claims of sexual abuse. So she's going to put it uh, on the ballot, hopefully, to get voters to support it. And so the work that she does is to show up as that politician willing to say to her peers at the legislature, this needs to be fixed. And no one likes to talk about this. And I can't imagine that the legislature enjoins it either. So, Sonia, maybe you can talk a bit about that, about navigating shame when advocating for victims' rights. Absolutely. Um, as Lara mentioned, you know, shame is experienced in the somatic form. There is a physical response. And I think um, something that we don't often talk about when when we're the ones navigating shame, like working with the legislature, right, is being able to identify when we're being impacted by it. What are those bodily sensations that Laura described, right? Like if I feel my heart rate or am I all of a sudden sweating and I was like cold two seconds ago, what's happening? Because that can help guide what we're feeling internally. And we cannot engage in conversations if we're outside of our window of tolerance. So at the Rape Recovery Center, we talk a lot about window of tolerance. And this applies to other hard conversations like racism, right? Is that once, once our body gets out of the window of tolerance, we no longer, our body moves into protection mode and survival mode. And so it starts to do things, our brain and our body starts to do things that we think we have control over and we don't. So it might look like, for example, with the legislator, it might look like them pulling out their phone and starting to go through their emails because in some way they wanting to disassociate or distance themselves from the conversation. So we have to be mindful of when it shows up in us, but then as a clinician, thankfully, I've been trained to see those nonverbal, um, the nonverbal language that is, and, and so that helps me navigate and see, okay, not everybody is present in this conversation. Do I need to adjust the way I'm talking about it? Do I need to ask people if they have questions and, and, and just sort of navigate the space in that way? Laura Baumgart, let's ask you as uh, Director of Clinical Services to jump in and, and, and share those experiences with the folks you work with about how, you know, how does that look and feel? And then how do you move through that and what happens in the body as the folks you're working with get to the other side of it? It's a great question that, you know, we could talk for days and weeks on this, but um. First of all, I think when folks first even come into our door, even our name, the Rape Recovery Center, can be activating and very shameful. And to be fully honest, like when I first started at the Rape Recovery Center, I was hesitant to share with people where I work because it's like, oh, this is going to make people really uncomfortable. And then I'm going to have to navigate that. And, and you know, but it's, I also appreciate that we, we, I mean, we do so much more than work with rape, right? We, we have a very complex, like, and delicate and sensitive way of working with folks. But um, so that that's like the first kind of entry point into our building. But I would say uh, shame comes in 
um, you know, I think as Sonia said, you know, this is individual and collective work. And I found in sessions, but also I think more importantly in group work that when we we start speaking about what has happened to us, we actually know that realize that we have a shared resonance of, oh, me too, in some way, or oh, I, I know what that feels like in my body when I'm when I feel like I want to hide an aspect of my lived experience or a piece of my identity or um, a part of part of who I am or something that's happened to me. And so it's something that feels so beautiful and um, deeply inspiring is when I'm in a collective group, whether that's in a meeting or in a group, you know, a facilitated group that we, we hold for clients or even out in the community when we we can step into a shared experience where we're holding each other within, you know, emotionally holding each other in those experiences, we don't feel alone. I think shame keeps us really isolative. So even the fact of our clients feeling safe enough or brave enough to come into our space already kind of demystifies that shame a little bit, or it's in that process of, of stepping into community and having someone else holds the narrative and hold your experiences like, deeply sacred. Danny and Jorge, I wanted to talk to you as outreach and prevention coordinators for Rape Recovery Center about how we move into a solution mode um, in our conversations. And I think that we can glean some some insight from your experiences as outreach coordinator and prevention coordinator, respectively. You know, I, I as you were saying earlier, Jorge, when you you can feel the shame in the room, especially you you said more from from men who tend to, to shut down. So how do we have that conversation? Because I know trying to talk to a group full of men as a woman about um, sexual assault, about rape culture can put them back on their heels defensively. So um, and that's a shame response, like you were saying. So maybe model for us, Danny and Jorge, some of the conversations you're having or techniques you use to move into solution mode in the work that you do. Danny. I think the biggest thing is... It's empowerment. That's something that we really hold in the mission statement. And I guess that's something that I've really internalized, right? You, There's no one way to overcome shame. There's no one way to um, kind of go through your trauma. And the thing that we're there to do, and especially in my role, is empower the survivor to do or at least give them the resources and the tools to do what's going to be best for them. No one knows better what's going to be best for someone than themselves. And especially um, after something as horrific as, as rape or sexual violence, um, we know that it's about control. When we talked about this, the very first um, um, kind of series that we had, but it's about power and control. So in some ways, by empowering, we're giving you back that power. And that's the goal, right? You know best what's going to be best for you and what's going to be helpful. And especially when you navigate feelings of shame, of, of hurt, of what's been going on. It's about the survivor and what's best for them. And my role there is just to provide you the resources, what we have, and what can perhaps help you in your journey. We should give the recovery uh, crisis line number at this point for anyone in crisis or looking for resources, Danny. It is our, we have a 24 seven crisis line, both in Spanish and English open every single day. Doesn't matter with the time. Um, that is 801-467-7273. And then of course the website for the nonprofit is? raperecoverycenter.org. 
Now, Jorge Barraza, as prevention coordinator, and you're working with folks who hear in the news all the time, one in three women in their lifetimes may most likely be a victim of sexual violence of some sort, and that the majority of perpetrators are men. So you're having these conversations, and you got to get through that shame and that defensiveness. How How is that going as you think about this a little differently um, and try and address rape culture when the people that you're talking to might be going, that's not me. I don't need this. Oh, exactly. You know, and you'd be surprised how many people don't know that one in three stat, actually. I think within our circles, like we talk about it enough that we know that, but it's, I still get responses every time I share that with a group. Um, and, you know, I wish it, I wish it wasn't the case, but there is uh, some power to being a, a male in this work. Uh, you know, when I when I show up and I've seen it when I co-facilitate uh, with, with a female peer uh, and how the boys and the men will react differently once I start to speak. Uh, so I think that speaks to the need for more men to become involved in this movement. For too long, it's been survivors and women uh, dealing with this, but we need people to just be proactive. Uh, and I think one of, one of my strategies for, you know, getting past that shame is I don't come in here and hammer you with negative stats uh, and say, don't rape or don't, you know, don't commit sexual violence. Uh, what I give people is an optimistic message, a positive message of, of <clears throat> how do you practice consent uh, in, a, in an affirmative, comfortable way? How do we get over that uncomfortableness, you know, so that we're, we're, uh, like I say, you know, actually, I feel that direct, affirmative, verbal consent is sexy. Uh, you know, and and the thing is, when I ask groups, whether it's middle schoolers to adults, I'll ask them, why is it difficult to ask for verbal consent? I get the same answers uh, like, oh, that's weird or it kills the moment. And I always wonder, how do 13 year olds get the idea that it kills the moment? <laughs> it's uh, sexy. Right? It's it's so weird. It's like, okay, this is this is what. First of all, I'm a daughter of an obstetrician and gynecologist. Okay, so these conversations. I was the kid on the playground who said that dirty joke is not anatomically correct. Okay, so you know I was not afraid of naming parts and having those conversations. But not everybody is raised with with that. And um, I just find it interesting the conversations or the fights we have over sex ed in this state and then wonder why we have the stats that we have that in Utah, one in three women and one in two transgender individuals will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime and one in four men will experience some form of sexual violence, according to another recent KSL story. And I'll link these stories in our show notes too, folks, so you can, can check them out. But I find that really interesting. And even as a, a woman of some age, I get it because... It's just supposed to happen organically when we get whatever we want to call it going on, Jorge it's and Danny. Modeled, uh, it's not modeled in the media, right? I, I always oh, wait, say, it is hey. modeled in the media, but in the wrong way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a healthy consent is not modeled in the media. Uh, and here's the other response I often get is, but what if they say no? That shocks me. Why oh. would you not want to know that? <laughs> really? <laughs> and, so and that, what do you say and, then? What do you say then in that conversation? Oh, stupid. Yeah. Oh, as soon as they say like, oh, yeah, and no is actually a good thing. It's yes. not a bad thing. It's a moment to have more conversation, Jorge. Yes. Uh -huh. So giving a positive message. I mean, so cause I do go in the room. They introduce me and people start. I can see them get a little uptight and uncomfortable. 
but once I start talking and I'm framing this in a positive way and how we can create a healthier community and a healthier society, uh, instead of talking about like just the impact, I mean, the impact is important. I talk about the prevalence and how it affects people, but let's aim for something positive. And, you know, if you say, well, I don't rape, so this is not a conversation for me. I invite people to come in and think of it differently. We all play a part in creating this culture of mm-hmm. either culture of rape or culture of consent. And Danny Martinez, Outreach Coordinator, I'm guessing from your work with survivors, you have gleaned what it is the, or, uh, or understand the gap we have in the conversation. Oh, absolutely. I think like Jorge said, everything, everyone plays a role. And very much when you have that kind of pushback, like, oh, well, I'm not a rapist. That very sentence, that very kind of thought process in itself is a very part of the problem, right? Yeah. And I think the biggest gap for me is just we don't talk about it. And as Laura said, the biggest, um, we're the Rape Recovery Center. Even in itself, it's really jarring when you hear that. But I think that's so important. Why is it? So perhaps when you hear the word, especially as um, maybe not a survivor, but as someone in the community, why is it so shocking for you? Why don't you want to talk about it? And that's especially why I invite folks when we're having conversations, Mm -hmm. let's really open up what is uncomfortable about it, right? Also being mindful that perhaps it's triggering for survivors who've been through it. But for those who haven't, why, why? Right. And I think that's the biggest question is perhaps pushing people in ways that they haven't previously thought to really have honest conversations about why is it uncomfortable? Why does the word, why does perhaps this thought make you uncomfortable? Laura Baumgart, Director of Clinical Services, do you want to add into onto this the, the glaring gap that's so obvious to me about our community? And what we do and don't talk about, you know, it's like we send our kids off to college and then we wonder why rape happens on campus when we haven't given them sex ed before then. Comprehensive sex ed. Laura. Yes, yes. Um, So we do a 40 hour training sexual assault um, for sexual assault uh, workers. um, And I facilitate the perpetration uh, conversation, which I actually really like. It's really uncomfortable. But um, the reason I'm bringing this up is I asked a question of when, when did you learn about consent? And we have folks from kind of all ages, different walks of life, even folks not from Utah originally. And often it's like college or um, even later. And when you think, and I know Jorge, you and I talk, you talk about this a lot. It's just like when consent is directly related to sexual engagement or intimacy, it misses the point. I know, Hori, you always, I remember you saying this to one of my first times meeting you is consent should happen. Like, you know, when someone's, I, I think of my nephew a lot of like, like me asking him, can I give him a hug if I haven't seen him? And he's like two. Um, so it's, I think the lack of just integration and conversation that we have at, even at just a young age of what body autonomy, body safety means, and choice, and um, when it comes to even just little ones, uh, I think that could prevent so much, but also for folks to feel more embodied and more connected to what is my yes and what is my no in my felt experience too. So it it, it always is interesting um, who was taught consent when and how that directly perpetuates this 
behind the scenes, we don't talk about that. And um, even the discomfort of talking about like anatomy and intimacy or what relationships can be like is um, it, it really paints an inaccurate picture of what what relationships are. Well, and the gen- and, the gendered modeling of who leads, who is in control of the yes and the no, and it gets so, I think, confusing. I'm just trying to think back to my salad days, green with youth, and and just how confusing it was. And I don't think it's changed that much, frankly. So, Sonia Martinez Ortiz, to, to close out our conversation, what is your message? on behalf of Rape Recovery Center, all the work that you do, the survivors that you represent, the conversations you want to have in the community. What's your what's your message or call to action when it comes to shame and sexual assault? So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the vision for the Rape Recovery Center is that we have a healthy, safe community where sexual violence does not exist. In order for that to happen, we have to both do the individual work and the collective work that's necessary, which is often very uncomfortable and foreign to many of us. And so the call to action is kind of a a three-part call to action for me. It's one, first start by believing. Um, It's two, start talking about consent at your kitchen tables, in your homes, in your nurseries, you know, in all of those places from when your children um, in your homes and in your families you're communicating with them, right? Um, the, the, the examples that Laura gave are really good examples. And then the last is, let's do something. Let's move beyond the conversation and move beyond the difficult conversations and reach out to your lawmakers. Ask them what they're doing. Hold us, the people doing this work in the community accountable and hold law enforcement accountable. Hold your lawmakers accountable because this collective action will only help if each of us step into it. Now, I understand there was an event you were involved in that had to be moved from this week, and it's now happening May 4th, supporting survivors during a global pandemic. Danny, can you fill us in? Yes. So the whole goal of the presentation or the workshop is to provide um, tools. Uh, How do we support survivors, especially during this time, being mindful that, right, a lot of spaces are opening up. Um, as But slowly as we start to do that, I think if anything, the lockdown and COVID really taught us a lot about ourselves. And I think we can speak as a collective, right? Um, being indoors, being with ourselves and whatnot. And so I think we took this toolkit from the National um, Sexual Assault Organization. And the goal is to, it's based more on radical healing and that kind of topic. So it's a very exciting workshop that we're going to have. So um, if y'all are able to join us, that's going to be Tuesday, May 4th at 6 p.m. And people just need to sign up? They just need to register. Um, It's on our website via the Zoom link. That's all you need to do. And even if you can't register, show up the day of and you'll just be automatically in. Great. We'll put it in the show notes. I just want to thank you all for joining us for this uh, very crucial conversation in our community as we wrap up Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And of course, I invite you back anytime. doesn't have to be April, which is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Thank you all. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Laura. And that's our show. My thanks to all of our guests. Questions, comments, suggestions. You can always go to krcl.org, hit the Community Affairs tab to find the Radioactive Archives and the show post for tonight, which will have lots of material for you to access and catch up on if you wanted to engage with the new Civic Engagement Toolkit from the Better Utah Institute. 
Check out that bike build with canned aid and squatters coming up in May, all to benefit the kids at Mary Jackson Elementary. But most of all, as we wrap Sexual Assault Awareness Month, if you need resources for yourself, a friend, a family, a coworker, there are resources on the Rallies and Resources page of krcl.org. And I just want to remind you that help is available through great nonprofits in our community like the Rape Recovery Center. The 24-7 crisis line is 801-467-7273. You can also find them online at raperecoverycenter.org. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening to Radioactive. Have a great night.